Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. We're doing Genesis 2 today. And to say we're in controversial waters would be an understatement. Um, uh, how, how best to prepare you? Our goal is to make the Bible weird. Um, our goal isn't that you agree with everything that we're talking about. That's why we do questions and we wrestle together. I'm going to offer some opinions that aren't um, the norm in kind of mo- what most of us have grown up in understanding. And the goal of that isn't to be un- inhospitable to people who see it differently, um, because there are loads of people who see this differently. We just want to say, I think there's a different way to see it than a lot of us have traditionally been taught. So there's 85 or 87 slides and block quotes. All right, so just be ready. Yeah, and then there'll be loads of time for question and answers. I've been bringing resources. If you're interested in really great scholarship written in an incredibly dry format, this is the book for you. All right? This is one of my favorite scholars, The Lost World of Adam and Eve by John Walton. And it's, he, he, his book is organized around 21 propositions. So that's how the table of contents. Proposition one. Proposition two. I mean, it's, it's like that. And uh, some friends were telling me last service, they ordered it and were listening it on like aud- Audible. And it was as equally bad being read as it is to read it. But if you're like, hey, I'm not sure I trust this guy, and I'd love to see where he gets some of this stuff, this is one of the books that I would point you to, all right? So let's start. Joe, let's skip the first slide. Let's go straight into the text. Genesis 2, there's no way to catch up if you're new. Um, This is where we uh, left off last week. And the Lord God commanded the man. And remember, is this a gendered male here? No, and the reason we know that is because there is the definite article, the. It's the human, the Adam, all right? After chapter four, we start meeting a dude named Adam. But up until then, it's mostly the Adam, all right? So God commanded the human being. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. We talked about what that meant last week. Here's where we start today. The Lord God said, it is not good for the human to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So let's just dive into it. It's interesting that up until this point, everything's been good, right? Uh, We go through the the six days of creation. It is good, 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 it is very good. And so it's striking when you get to chapter two, verse 18, and you read, it was not good. And the question is, what's not good? What's not good about the human being alone? Well, if we go to the previous section in Genesis chapter one, God created humanity, In his own image, in the image of God, he created them, 
Male and female, he created them. And so imaging, according to Genesis 1, to properly image God requires both similarity and difference coming together in unity. And so the one couldn't image, let alone be fruitful and multiply. So what's not good is the human of chapter 2 can't fulfill the calling of chapter 1 as male and female to fill the earth, to rule it, but to properly image God as they do so. Are you with me so far? Great. I want to talk, so it's not good that the human is alone. I want to talk about, then God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. So to say that this passage has been misunderstood a little is an understatement. All right, so we're gonna take, I'm so sorry, if you're here and you're like, guys, I just wanna learn how to budget better uh, and I want God to bless me more. Um, I, this is not that. Um, we're gonna look at the word ezer and then the word konegdo. Ezer is the word for help. Konegdo is the word for suitable, all right? Let's talk about this word helper. Now, it sounds in English like the man needs a administrative assistant, right? The gendered male was created and he needs help. Um, and, and this passage has been understood still today as teaching that women have some sort of like subordinate following role because the man was created first and then the woman was there to assist. And I wanna blow that out of the water with the Bible itself. Um, the word helper, Ezer, we're going to learn, we're going to see that it translates savior, saving, or deliverance through conflict. All right? It is, next, it's masculine in grammatical gender, which means the word is a kind of title or a role description, not an adjective. Now, this becomes really, really important. And, and this, um, this is from Walton, the noun help occurs 21 times in the Hebrew Bible outside of Genesis 2, it is only used to describe who? Say it, only used to describe who? Is Yahweh an assistant to those he's rescuing? No, he's a savior. So, Yahweh, is, it's used to describe Yahweh as a deliverer of his people, or it's used negatively of useless humans who do not provide help the way that God can. All right, so let's go through a bunch of examples of these 21 times, all right? And the, the word in English is help, the Hebrew word is ezer, and see if it means assistant. And the other person was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my ezer. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. So does it sound like Eliezer needed administrative help from Yahweh, or does it sound like he needed rescue? Well, I'm gonna go with rescue. Next, we'll see a theme here. And this he said about Judah. Hear, Lord, the cry of Judah. Bring him to his people with his own hands to defend his cause. Oh, Lord, be his ezer, his help against his foes. Next. Psalm 20, may the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. Now, does that sound inferior? Does that sound secondhand? No, not even remotely. It sounds like it's needed and crucial. 
Psalm 33, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him and on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our ezer or strength and our shield. A couple more just because we want to overmake the point. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? A great song lyric. And the word for help there is ezer. My ezer comes from the Lord. Next. This is, how, this is an example of how it's ezers used negatively. Pharaoh's protection, Israel, will be to your shame. You don't need to make an alliance with them. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in Zoan and their envoys have arrived in Hanes, I mean, we know where these are, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage. So here's an example where humans couldn't provide Ezer to other humans. Now, back to Ezer. Any interpretation that sees this word as subordinate or secondary is violating how the word is used in the rest of the New Testament, some of which was written before Genesis. So this is not a weak secondary word, all right? It's used of Yahweh. Now let's talk about the word, oh, let's, let's yeah, here it is. So we define it this way. Ezer is God's help or rescue. It describes someone who plays the role of the indispensable other without whom the desired good can happen. So it's not good that the human is alone. The human's aloneness is something the human needs rescued from. And so God provides an Ezer to rescue the human from his solitude. Are you with me? Now, it's un, like, it gets taught that it's the man, a gendered man that's created first, and then the gendered woman comes alongside. That's not what this is saying. Remember, Adam just means the human being, the dirt being, formed from the dust. And as we're gonna see, that human gets split into two equal halves that are gendered, but not gendered yet. So what we're not saying is that the man was created and God was like, ah, I can do better, and he creates the woman, although that's true. <laughs> Nor is he saying, oh man, the dude, that's just too big, like too big, he needs someone to help around the kitchen. So let's create the woman. Like all of those stereotypes, that's not what's being said here, all right? And we know that from the second word, connecto. All right, let's look at connecto, yes, suitable, Connecto means corresponding to him, and it's made up of two prepositions, grammar nerds. The first preposition, preposition K, means like, as, or according to, and neged is the second one, which means in front of or opposite. So, so you, what you get from this, connecto means someone who is alike opposite in front of him. That's what the word means. It's kind of like a mirror image. Like the mirror is the same, but it's opposite and it's in front of you. Does that make sense? And um, let's, let's explore, let's skip the Exodus passages. They don't need that. Let's go to some block quotes from Victor Hamilton, all right? And the reason I include these isn't because you're all fans of block quotes, but I wanna show the work. And so these are scholars 
uh, that I'm reading and channeling that are saying these kinds of things, and I want you to see it in their own words. The last part of verse 18 reads literally, I will make him for him a helper as in front of him or according to what is in front of him. This last phrase, as in front of him, occurs only here and in verse 20. It suggests that what God creates for the human will correspond to him. It will be similar to him. Thus, the new creation will be neither a superior nor an inferior, but a what? There you go. The creation of this helper will form one half of a polarity and will be to the gendered male as the South Pole is to the North Pole. Oh, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. Next. This is Victor Hamilton again. If you yes that one, let's yes this one too. This Ezra Conegdo, this new creation, which the human needs, is called Ezer, which is masculine and gender, though here it is, a deter- it is a term for woman. Any suggestion that this particular word denotes one who has only an associate or subordinate status to a senior member is refuted by the fact that most frequently this same word describes Yahweh's relationship to Israel. He is Yahweh's helper because he is the stronger one. The verb behind Ezer, Azar, literally means, next slide, save from danger, deliver from death. The woman in Genesis 2 delivers or saves the man from his solitude. Any theology of a a woman's place in the home or in the church that starts here and, and leads to a place where they are subordinate and secondary isn't doing justice to the ideal of what's being taught in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, where does hierarchy come from? Well, according to Genesis, it comes in chapter 3, after the fall, to the woman. And we're going to talk about this. Guys, please stick for this one. Because God isn't increasing, women, your pain in childbirth. That's, I know that's what, the, what English says, but the word childbirth there is never used that way all the other time it's used. It's actually about the anxiousness that comes from bearing children in the wilderness, which is interesting. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire, we'll talk all about this, will be for your husband and he will what? Yeah, is that the ideal? Or is that what happened after sin? The ideal is Genesis 1 and 2, male and female made together in their equal image bearers, co-ruling the face of the planet. We get a zoom in on these representative humans, the living one and the the human, Adam and Eve, and here we get a picture of the fact that what is being promised to the human is one who is like him, corresponding to him, in front of him, but opposite him. And somehow, in their sameness and their difference, they image God. The human can't image God by itself, because the image of God is best manifested when in community of similar but opposite people who come together as one. Are you with me? You don't have to buy this. Verse 19, so that's Ezra Konegdo. Now the Lord, in order to find an Ezra Konegdo, 
formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Now, who's the only one that's been naming things so far? Yeah, Yahweh's only been naming things. I shall call you day and night and sea and land. And so here we have an example of what it means to have the image bearingness of humanity called upon us, which is he's imitating God in a much smaller way. So God calls the animals, and, and there's an old rabbinic tradition that God brought two of each in front of the human. In the same way, he brings two of each into the ark, which is a reenactment of the Eden story later. But he brings two of each, and what the human notices is that all of these could be helpers, but they're not an Ezer Konegdo that corresponds to him. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, the wild animals, but for Adam, no Ezer Konegdo was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's side. Now I put side in there, even though grammatically it's, it doesn't make sense because normally the word is a rib. We're gonna talk about the rib thing in a second because we're all for ribs just in barbecue, but it's not what this says. He took, one of the, he took the man's side and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman, a gendered woman now, from the side he had taken out of the gendered man and brought her to the man. So the man was gendered first, the woman was gendered second. Paul's gonna reflect on this in some of his writings. Now, let's go through this very painfully. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. Um, the deep sleep here isn't the normal word for sleep. It's a visionary sleep. And the word that's used is used to describe people who enter into a vision where God shows them the result of the thing he's doing. So when the man sees him being split apart into male and female, that's not a record of the surgery that happened. Rather, it's, it, it is the vision experience of what this new being is to him. He's the Ezer Konegdo, or she's the Ezer Konegdo that, that, that he didn't have before. All right? So, the deep sleep, and again, okay, this is here. The deep sleep is visionary sleep. It's not that God got out a table saw and said, okay, let's cut this guy in half and then make two. I don't know how exactly this happened. It's just that this is the way of Yahweh saying, hey, all those animals, birds, and whatever, those are not your Ezra Konegdo. Here's your Ezra Konegdo. And actually, it comes from the side of you. Now, let's get to the word that's rib or side. I always thought it was rib. And it, the idea is he took a small part out of the gendered male and then formed a woman. The, the picture, more accurately, is that the man gets, that the human gets split into male and female. For you science geeks, it's the splitting of the atom, right? So... Let's do a block quote, just in case you're not following with this. The word selah, or selah, tesela, is used about 40 times in Hebrew, but it's not an anatomical term. In other words, the word that we translate rib never refers to a body part ever. It's an architecture word that refers to the side of a building. Right, and here's a person that's much smarter saying the same thing. Outside of Genesis 2, with the exception of 2 Samuel, referring to the other side of the hill. 
the word is only used architecturally for Noah's Ark, the temple, and the tabernacle. Those are places of God's ezer. Come on now. That's so good. It can refer to planks or beams in these passages, but most often it refers to one side or the other. So the, so the picture is that Adam gets a vision of himself being, and again, Adam here is the human, gets a vision of himself being split into a gendered pale, pair, male and female. And I know this is new, and I know you don't have to buy it. It's totally fine. That's not the goal. The goal is to make the Bible weird so that we approach it again with humility and curiosity. All right? But the reason I do block quotes is to show the work. So you're not like, hey, who's that guy? That guy could be split in thirds. And it's true. There'd be enough left over to make, you know, two ezers. I got that. Now, what's the man? Now, what does the gendered man say now that there is a gendered counterpart to him? This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, and here we have some gendered terms. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. Remember how the, the human was named Adam because he came, or it came from the Adama. So, the woman is named Isha because she came from the East. There's just lots of like sweet wordplay going on around here. The, the phrase, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, that's him saying she is my similar, opposite, in front of me counterpart who allows me now to fulfill the mission to be fruitful, rule, and to image God. And then the author adds... Verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And this is where my purity culture background zeroed in on that phrase, one flesh. Now, here's what's interesting. How this is used is super fascinating. So, and this is really hard. Last service, I got a ton of questions about it, so I'm gonna try to take a little more time with it. So, we have a human that's one, and then is split into gendered male, gendered female. Why not just leave the human alone? Well, because the human couldn't image God. Why? Because the image of God consists in similarity, yet diversity. Plurality, yet unity. So a symbol of the image of God is the sexual act between a man and a woman. Why? Because what was split is now reunited. But the problem is that's not the only focus on the passage. God is imaged wherever differing people become one. So you get to Ephesians, and Paul is talking about Jews and Gentiles and their conflict. And he's like, God, God has remade you into one new humanity. Be one, be unified, over and over and over. And then he gets to marriage. And he talks about husbands and wives. And then, and then all of a sudden at the end of that, he says, no, I'm not talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about Christ and the church. In other words, one flesh isn't something that only happens in a married couple. One flesh can happen in a community. That's why single people are not, or divorced people, or people who are same-sex attracted or whatever, why those people image God in community too. 
We all image God individually, but the image of God is best expressed when a community of similar, alike, opposites, and front ofs gathers together in unity. That's why Paul goes berserk about unity. He always is coming back to this passage. So the one flesh act that here we just sexualize and make it only about that is actually a picture of what God wants to happen with Israel and with the church through the rest of the story. questions. I know. I know. I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it right there. And here's the deal. If you want to ask questions, please feel free. We ask that they be quick. We ask that they be actually questions. We ask that they be clear. We ask that they be relatively concise. Text questions in. If we don't get to them today, they'll be answered, or we'll talk about them on our podcast. And the reason we take questions, and and I've purposely just halted out of nowhere to give us loads of time for this because some of this stuff is gonna take a while to process. And the implications of this stuff is gonna take a while to process too. So, any thoughts, questions? Yes? Hello. Hello. So I still have a question that maybe I should have asked this a couple weeks back, but I'm still confused about the gendered male thing because I thought it was kind of implied and I may have t- taken the message wrong that before Adam and Eve, there were other humans that were male yeah. and female. So yes. what is the difference with no, Adam? You, you killed it. You yeah. nailed it. Yes. So Genesis 1 tells us humanity was created. Then Genesis 2 is going to tell us about a garden, and representative humans are going to be put in that garden as priests for the rest of humanity. And if you're new, you're like, what? And There's a reason why we think that. So God is telling us, so Adam and Eve, the really hard part about Adam and Eve is they serve multiple functions in the story. First of all, they're referred to as individual, like historical characters, but they also function as archetypes because Adam's name is human and Eve's name is living. So the living humans, right? So, so in this part in Genesis, the reason we know it's the Adam is because there's a the, there's a definite article before Adam. So we're not talking about an individual human per se as much as an individual human who serves as an archetype for the rest of humans. So what's true of Adam is true of the humanity that already existed. But we're getting, a, we're getting zeroed in. It's like, it's like when God calls Abram. There are lots of other families there, but we just focus on one couple that gets called into service for the rest of humanity. That's what the Adam and Eve story is, the beginning of. Does that make sense? Yes, but also, so did Adam, was he like a man? Or I know that it's not specified as much, but that I think is what I'm mostly confused about because if male and female had already been created. Yeah. Or, yeah, wow. So, so, it is. And, And remember, here they're archetypes. So, we're, look, we're looking at what's true of Adam and what's true of Eve are true of all of humanity. But not what's true of all humanity is true of Adam and Eve. That's, the, that's what an archetype does. And, and I, I know we should spend more time on this, but the idea is we're looking at a representative couple and we're not given an origin story. What we're not being told here is how God made them. We're being told why they're male and female. Genesis 1 told us that they were. Genesis 2 tells us why. Does that make sense? Did we finally get there? 
I found that if I just keep talking, <laughs> unintentionally, things may come out. Hello, Zach. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, can we go back to the labor during childbirth? Because... <laughs> it's coming. I, I have always, honestly, like, kind of struggled with feeling like God gave woman an extra dose of curse yeah. after the fall. Yeah. And I've been, always thought, like, well, why does he, like, dislike women? Like, what yeah. did we do yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to yeah. you know, Oh, well, you're the tempter. You're the his, one that fell. Exactly. I totally. feel like it plays into that. Absolutely it does. So. Thing that we've been taught our yes. whole lives. Yes. So I yes. need to know more about it to Oh, it's coming. So change. guess what? I, I don't want to be the guy that says you have to come back to church. <laughs> but it's coming. Two weeks, maybe? First of all, what he says to the man and woman are curses, they're laments. Only the serpent is cursed. And secondly, that the childbearing, we're there, again, we're gonna show painful work with block quotes and Hebrew definitions, is better understood differently. So, don't worry, yes? I have so many questions. I'm trying to figure out which one I wanna ask. Um, so I've been taught a lot of what you're, what you're sharing about the power of being an Ezer as yeah. a woman. Yeah. Um, but I've also been taught, yeah, you're an Ezer, but you're still in a role that's a woman in like, that's inferior, I guess. I hate that. Yeah. Maybe that's too strong of a word. Yeah. So role no. rise, I'm still need yeah. to be, you're under, yeah. right under here. Yeah. Are you pushing back against that as well? As dramatically as possible. Okay. That's okay. Yes. one more question. One more question. Um, also, do you think if you're describing, if Ezer is a rescuer, which is what I'm seeing yeah. to be, yeah. is that possibly why the enemy approached her instead of, instead of the man? Genius, <laughs> genius question. Okay, we could take 45 minutes on this. First of all, um, I was raised in a tradition that said women were equal, but women had a definitive role. Men lead, women follow, is how it was shorthanded. Men are the head of the household, male elders are the head of the church. And there are loads of people that see biblical reason for that. I've actually changed my mind on that because of biblical reasons. Um, and I, I had to leave a church because of it. Um, so this wasn't just a flip it like, oh yeah, women's libs out there, so I should probably reach the, you know, liberal women. Um, this was like, no, there was a there was a thing. I was at a church where women were not allowed to serve communion, and um, and that was just, I just, yeah. Anyway, all that is to say. So I have a lot of passion about this particular topic, and so I want to answer uh, sequentially. First of all, any emphasis on biblical manhood or womanhood is uh, really misguided. What you find when you look at biblical manhood, biblical manhood and womanhood is that they will import 1950s cultural understandings of masculinity and femininity and then biblicize those in a hierarchical culture that already we're told is hierarchical, not because of God's design, but because of sin. So you can't pull normative passages that recognize there's hierarchy in the world as a result of sin and say, that's the way God wants it. That's the first thing. The second thing 
is the way Paul talks about Adam and Eve in the New Testament has been greatly misunderstood. Paul talks about Adam in three different ways. As an individual through whom sin came into the world. Secondly, as an archetype that because Adam fell and is frail, we all fell and are frail. But also as an anti-type to Christ. That Adam, if we're in Adam, that means we're in sin, subject to death, so on, so on. Whereas in Christ, all of that's reversed. Eve is only referred to as an illustration. So Paul talks in 2 Timothy about Eve being deceived. Not because she's a woman and women are easily deceived. But rather, she did not receive the instruction that the human received earlier in the chapter. And, and we know that because of how Paul talks about how the, the ad, so, so in Timothy, Timothy's writing to a congregation where women are being deceived by the bad teaching of men. The fact that he's the one that misquotes the initial command shows that she didn't either understand it, Adam didn't tell her that, or some, something was lost in translation. And so she serves as an example of a woman who was deceived by the false teaching of men. Now, you don't have to take my word for that, but if we were like in a seven-hour conversation, that's where I'm going. And I do think that also has ramifications for headship in marriage. I, I, I just, I want you to be really suspicious. Like I grew up and there was a book called Growing Kids God's Way. And it was spare the rod, spoil the child, right? And that meant you are biblically mandated to, to spank your kids. I was spanked well and often uh, growing up. And <laughs> I think there are times, okay, I'm open to it. But to say, because of one proverb, or there are a couple of others that seem to say similar things, that that is the biblical way to parent. Proverbs aren't laws or commands. Proverbs are wisdom to be used precisely when there isn't a law or a command. So the point of the proverb is discipline your children or they'll be spoiled. And so there are people, like I got an email from somebody who was like, I feel horrible every time I spank my kid but I'm told this is the godly way to do it. Now, if you choose to do it, that's whatever. But to add, that's the godly way, that's the part I'm objecting to. That there's only one way to be masculine or one way to be feminine. You have to have a gentle, quiet spirit or be a Proverbs 31 woman. Come on now. There are biblical women all over who are not Proverbs 31 women. Not only that, but Proverbs is talking about wisdom. All the feminine language is talking about lady wisdom. Now, you don't have to buy this, right? And I know this is going against upstream against a lot of what's out there. But if we had this conversation, I'm not going to be talking about the culture thinking this. I'm going to talk about the Greek and Hebrew words and how they function. And you can disagree. There are loads of people that disagree. You are welcome to disagree. Absolutely. But if I'm one of the co-students in our community and I'm asked, hey, do you see this filtering down to like our desire to have very like crystallized gender roles everywhere else? I'm like, yeah, I'm really suspicious about that because I've met some women who should be leading. So I think instead of, well, we're getting way too far afield. What was the second part of your question? I had asked about um, if she's considered to be like the rescuer. Yeah. Um, is that maybe why 
I, I think you answered yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because so, you, you said she wasn't misinformed. Yes. Basically. Well, that's what I'm going to argue from Timothy. Yes. You bet. So good. Yeah, now, okay, now we got questions. All right, over here. Uh, so, you know, you said that Azer was uh, a male noun. Yeah, and grammatically. Like, right. And I, I like that you brought that in comparison with the relation to Yahweh to his people. Do you think that that's also important because the reader in a patriarchal system that they had would have interpreted it through the same lens of like, oh, maybe this is challenging social norms in the same way? Such a good question. I think it was intended to be read that way. But like today, I'm not sure culturally how well equipped we are to see it that way. Because as I'm hearing myself talking, this was, what I wore, this was what I was warned that liberalism looked like. Liberalism is saying that women deserve an equal place in the, in the home and in the church. And we're not saying that women and men are same. Please don't hear that. It's precisely in their difference that their unity means something. So there are things that are true of women and are things that are true of men. But to elevate that and say that's what biblical manhood or womanhood is, if you're a guy that doesn't live that way or exemplify those attributes, where do you go? Or if you're a woman who comes on too strong, it's just one of those things where without noticing, I think we've allowed cultural norms to define some biblical words for us. And so we end up subtly saying to women, either overtly or not, we say it subconsciously, hey, yes, you're women, you're equal, but you're kind of subordinate, and it's really up to the men to lead this thing. And, and certainly we have biblical examples of that, right? But my point in using the biblical examples is that we've already been told this is one of the results of sin. And that's why when Paul comes along, and in Romans 16, names all of his female co-workers. It's a really big deal, you know? And one of them's an apostle. And, and, there, and he uses language about female co-workers that he uses about male co-workers. And it's a big deal why Jesus comes and allows sinful women or not sinful women to come and sit around in the place of discipleship. The thing about Mary and Martha, ladies, isn't that Martha was busy while Mary was being devoted to Jesus in prayer. It was that Mary sat in a room full of men in the posture of a disciple, that she had the audacity and the chutzpah to assume she was a student of Jesus. Come on. What does T.T. Jake say? Woman, thou art loosed. Never understood that line. He wrote a book. Okay, I don't know what that means. The Bible is hugely patriarchal. Do you think human beings ever understood this and practiced it? Or do you think it was never realized, man and woman equal, because they're now outside of Eden? Great question. Oh, I think both. So our natural state is to try to have power over each other. Right? And then you date, and then you get married, and you realize, oh yeah, this is a power struggle. Right? And you can biblicize it all you want, but it's a power struggle right? in a lot of our ugliness. And you see that in churches. right? Churches become power. I mean, it's just, this is the natural human condition. And so, it's, so we can agree intellectually with a theology that says in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek or whatever, but then we live in a world that says 
there are value judgments attached to all those things. I see it as Jesus, the perfect human, I see him embodying this. Jesus had close, intimate associations with women, so much so that it was scandalous. Jesus valued women beyond the cultural norms. The fact that they were eyewitnesses to his resurrection and told the men, we'll never, we'll never know how big a deal that was. If you're making up a religion, you don't have women be the lead ambassadors of it. So, and then I see Paul doing it. And I know Paul gets such a bad rap because of, hey, women, be quiet. And hey, women, I don't permit you to have authority. But I just understand those verses to be very culturally, you know, in one case, dealing with length of hair and head coverings and questions in the, in the assembly. And in another case, I think women were channeling the inappropriate teaching of men in ways that harmed the community. And it was better for them to assume the posture of a student rather than to be teachers themselves. So I think, I think the church is a place where we get to practice. The issue is we've so elevated marriage that we think that's the only place to practice. So we have tons of single, divorced, widowers, people who are sexual minorities, and they just have no idea of how this could work for them, when in actuality, this is the place where we all come as siblings to share in the same table. And it's the hospitality we have. So all of the gender valuations around male, female, black, white, rich, poor, all of those are to be resisted here. And instead I look out and I see a a room full of brothers and sisters. Does that make sense? I know I'm way afoot from your original question. But I wanna, and again, you don't have to buy it, but I wanna explore some of the um, implications downstream of understanding Genesis in this way and what might those look like. So thank you. Um, One more maybe? Zach. So this may be like down the line, but would you go as far as to say that patriarchy is sinful or was caused by the fall? It depends what you mean by patriarchy. If, if you mean the value distinctions that see men as superior over women, then yes, absolutely. Because Genesis is not teaching that at all. There's no hint of it anywhere. Um, I mean, there's just not, there's just none. And so we only get that after the fall, right? We get polygamy immediately. We get Lamech boasting to his two wives about how he'll kill anybody that messes with him. I mean, we're introduced to ugliness the minute we're out of the garden. So I would say, if that's what patriarchy means, yes. Would I say that being man is a, being male is a good thing and being masculine is a good thing? Absolutely. Is there toxic masculinity such a thing in the world? Sure. There's corrupted forms of femininity and masculinity all over the place. Who do we look to for what it means to be human? Jesus of Nazareth. So we can see in Jesus, feminine imagery all over the place. He weeps over Jerusalem like a mother hen, right? I mean, and again, that, (laughs) it's hard not even to play that into the stereotypes. You know what I mean? But it's just fascinating. Paul talks about himself as a nursing mother over his churches. Like these were people who were, who were okay living in resistance to the gender norms to make the point about what the new humanity is. And the new humanity isn't hierarchical. The new humanity is siblingship. 
Now, in the church, there are places of authority. And in the church, like that resides in a group of people called the elders. But they don't have power. What they have is authority, and that's often a different thing. And that's where we really get confused, right? We just think authority means power, and power means authority, and that's not, that's not how the Bible spills it out. So, nothing to chew on there. All right. Here's what I want to do. Buy it or not, that's just fine. But I, I want to take a moment, and I want to ask my sisters if they would stand, no matter their age. And you don't have to. I'm, I'm going to ask you to stand because I want the brothers in the room and then myself over you, or in the room, myself and my brothers, to pray over you and to pray a blessing and for some of you to pray healing over. You don't, you're not signing up for anything, although we'll put the children's ministry thing up on the... Just teasing. I know, right? I know, right? That's not just for women. Oh, thank you. Yes, men. Yeah, thank you. But, but here's the thing. We've heard and I've t- spoken with people who have been told um, some of the things that we've talked about and have been held and harmed uh, by some of the bad theology that's out there. And they've not been welcomed into full participation in the kingdom community because they've been told in some way, shape, or form they're second-class citizens. Or they've been stuffed into a biblical femininity idea that doesn't really match themselves and told that they needed to change because they didn't fit. And so I think there's wounding here. And so my brothers, I just want you to find a sister that's kind of standing near you. And I just, we're gonna take a few moments, you're just gonna stay seated, but I wanna pray. I wanna pray healing over our sisters. I wanna pray welcome and hospitality over our sisters. I wanna pray over our daughters, that they would not know that there was any other option than full participation in the entire life of the church. I wanna pray that the Holy Spirit pours out dreams and visions according to what Peter preaches in the book of Acts and what he points to as evidence of the Spirit's coming over our sisters. And that the future of the church looks like siblingship and participation and partnership. So ladies, would you close your eyes? We know God does his best work when our eyes are closed. My brothers, would you look around And would you just take a moment, maybe 30 seconds, and would you just pray that those who are in this room would feel the Spirit's healing and permission to believe that they're welcome fully and utterly at the table and that the ways they've been told they're secondary don't reflect the heart of Jesus to them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we stand, Jesus, in your authority.
following your practice to bless, to heal, to welcome the women who are in this room into leadership and participation as absolutely indispensable members of the kingdom community. And I pray that for those who have been deeply hurt, I pray that you would spark a bit of healing and a bit of hope. I pray that you would draw near to the brokenhearted and that we would just see you as this good. And Lord, that we would be a community where we don't all have to agree on this stuff, but we're working it out together with tenderness and gentleness. And so I pray for my sisters. Lord, I just speak healing and blessing and favor over them. And we wanna be a place that resists the cultural valuations that are attached to some of this stuff. And Lord, we pray for our daughters. We pray that our daughters would inhabit a world within the church where they recognize and there's, that there's no hindrance, there's no stumbling block, there's nothing else for them but welcome and and joyous participation that they don't even know the other's an option. Lord, we've seen the fruit of bad leadership in the church with all the scandals that are going on and all of the awful. My prayer for this church and the church is that the future would be siblingship. Where men and women live in a beautiful, beautiful relationship and partnership. And so we pray you start with us. We pray this in the name of Christ, amen. Go ahead and be seated. As always, we're gonna take communion together as siblings. You can write a prayer request down around the room. Always encourage you to do that. Father, we love you. These are hard places, hard theologically, it's hard emotionally, it's just hard. And so we pray that you would be gentle with us. It's your kindness that leads us into newness and change and repentance. And so we boast in that kindness now as we approach the table, God, we recognize that we all have fallen short and participate in the dynamics of the old world. So we come to remind ourselves that we're yours. We do this in the name of our Jesus. Amen.